Hi, I'm Paul Thagard. I'm a philosopher and cognitive scientist working in Canada. What's the purpose? Why do we want to do this? Why do we want to be alive? To put it in a form that uh, uh, a South African philosopher did, why is it not better never to have been born? <laughs> so I think that's the question. It's really a question of purpose, how you can get up in the morning and think, yeah, I really actually want to get through this day. Well, I can tell you when the question became acute for me, most of my life I never worried about it because I had to, <laughs> life was going along very well. But it was really in 2004 when my wife was dying of cancer that the issue really became very live because I was trying to figure out how to go on and obviously feeling very sad that this was happening. So that's when, even though I'd been a philosopher for a long time, I started reading about questions of, of meaning and purpose and felt the need to come up with my own answer, which I didn't feel the need for before because <laughs> I obviously had a highly meaningful, enjoyable life. But that is what made it quite vivid for me. Uh, and then I remembered something that I'd read about Freud a long time ago. He was once asked, what, what's, what's the purpose of life? Uh, and he said, well, there isn't really any purpose, but love and work are pretty good things. And I read that, I thought, Wow, I think that's actually the answer to the question, because if you've got love and work in your life, then you've got lots of purpose. You don't need to have the promise of an afterlife. You don't need to have God looking out for you. You don't have to believe that everything happens for a reason. Because cancer, for example, doesn't happen for a reason. It's basically a chance biological event. But you've got to have ways in which love and work are part of your lives. And most people can get that. Sometimes people get depressed because their work's going badly or they're unemployed or because their relationships are falling apart. But those are not permanent enterprises, usually. You can find ways, even under fairly dire circumstances, to add aspects of love and, and work in your life. Now, that doesn't just mean romantic love, that's really important, but also friendships, extended families, those are all part of love, it's, I understand it. And work doesn't have to be just going off to the office, it's also various kinds of productive activities people have, various kinds of hobbies, these are all things that provide satisfaction. So I was convinced, well, long before actually, this 2004 crisis that love and work were important. I added another element into it as the basis of a conversation I had, oh, maybe 20 years ago. I was talking to a friend at a conference, and he was going through a really tough time, and and I told him what Freud had said about love and work, and he said, you know, what I really like is going mountain climbing. Now, I consider mountain climbing an astonishingly irrational activity, but obviously it was important to him, and it's not love, and it's not work, it's play. And at that point, I realized, oh, yeah, well, play is really important, too. And there's lots of ways in which that can enrich your life, especially if you look at little children. Um, they've got love if they've got decent families and they got don't really have work, but they have a great time just playing. So that's when I came up with a slogan that I use in my book on the brain and the meaning of life, that the meaning of life in its most simple form is love, work and play. Why, why does love fill us with meaning and, and how do we actually cultivate relationships of love in a way that are, are meaningful? There's vast amounts of evidence that love and personal relationships in general are really important to people. There's lots of psychologists who've done studies that show that people don't have good relationships. Sometimes they call it belongingness or relatedness. Then they really suffer. They're really unhappy. So we know just psychologically that most people need to have these kinds of associations, close associations with other people. The question now you might ask more deeply is why? 
And that's where neuroscience is, I think, really important. You have to understand how brains work. And one of the things that's been learned dramatically about brains, really only the last few decades, actually Freud understood this, but didn't have much evidence for it, is that emotions really matter. People sometimes think that you're basically a thinker and sometimes emotions get in the way. You've probably heard people say, well, are you being, are you being, uh, are you being rational or are you being emotional? That's an incredibly dumb question because we now know from both experimental and neuroscientific results that people need both those things. That if you don't have your emotions engaged, you're not making good decisions. If you don't have your emotions engaged, you're not figuring out what matters to you. You're not paying attention to what matters to you. So we're not like computers that can calculate like mad. We can do some of that, but a lot of our calculations are legitimately tied in with the ways we feel, with what's, what's, what's important to us. So I think we've got the innate neural machinery that inclines us to have the kinds of relationships which, when they work well, can provide enormous amount of meanings to our lives. Our brains are set up to find meaning, not just in the linguistic sense, where we've got innate abilities to deal with sentences and words, but in the emotional sense, where things can actually matter to us very deeply, including the relationships we have with other people, the worthwhile activities we can do as work or hobbies, and the things we do for fun, such as sports and literature and music. So my dad's a neuroradiologist. Um, He knows a lot about the brain. And of course, I've been keeping track of all the advances we've made in understanding how the brain connects to certain things um, and heard terms like dopamine and oxytocin and and a lot of these terms. And I've always struggled to understand how knowing how the brain works at a chemical level translates to how we might live, like what you know, what does it actually do? It's it's like there's sort of a gap between, I don't know, the, the mechanism of the brain and the experience of being human. How, how have you thought through that relationship between brain as machine and life as this other kind of experience? Well, you need to be able to fill it in with psychology as an intermediary. That's why emotion is so important. So listening to music is extremely emotional. So it helps a lot to understand the dopamine system. So when you take a piece that you really love, uh, for me, it could be Van Morrison or Beethoven. When I hear them, I feel good. Uh, You can get, get not just attention, not just engagement, but actually good feelings. Well, what's going on? I think it helps to know that there's a part of your brain called the nucleus accumbens, and that's the pleasure center, and it's got lots of dopamine circuitry, so that when I'm enjoying those pieces of music, the brain is processing it in a way that sends the dopamine cycles, uh, circuits that get activated, and the nucleus accumbens isn't saying, I'm happy. It's way more complicated than that, because the nucleus accumbens is interacting with other emotional areas and all sorts of cognitive areas as well. So there's a complex interaction going on, and that that's why Beethoven is doing it for me. Or talking about relationships. Uh, one thing that's really important for relationships is oxytocin. So why do people get so intensely involved with other people? Why do they fall in love? Why do we have infatuation? Well, and, and deep companionate love as well. Oxytocin provides part of that explanation. Well, how do we know that? Well, there's studies on voles, which are these little mouse-like animals, and they're two different species of moles, prairie voles and mountain voles, and one of them 
is like most animals, most mammals, uh, they don't form pair bonds. They just basically screw around. But the other kind, I think it's the prairie voles, they form lifetime attachments. Wow, that's really interesting. That's like people at least some of the time. <laughs> they actually do seem to do something that's analogous to falling. What's the difference between prairie voles and, and mountain voles? The answer is oxytocin or the male analog, which is vasopressin. So you've got circuitry in the prairie voles that seems to be involved. Actually, not seems. We know it's involved because you can knock out those genes and then prairie voles just screw around like mountain voles. <laughs> Whereas for most people, the kinds of attachment we make to partners, and especially kind of attachment we make to children, is very intense. It shapes our lives in a way that I think is usually very good. And oxytocin is a big part of that. So you're learning something much more deep about love and play and about work if you understand what these basic brain mechanisms are. Making Meaning is a limited series from Ministry of Ideas. It is produced by me, Zachary Davis, and Jack Pombriand. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us on Twitter, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at ministryofideas.org. We would love to hear from you. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at hubspokeaudio.org.